of a real piece of art. And today we'll be talking about Hazel Meyer's Muscle Panic at the Dunlop Art Gallery. A real piece of art is a radio show about art exhibitions in and around Regina, primarily in nonprofit professional exhibition spaces. The aim of a real piece of art is to ask questions that anyone can use to analyze, interpret, make judgments about, and hopefully understand works of art. We also address some lesser known aspects of the art world, all the jobs that people do within it, and just what they are. So let's get on with the show, one that will hopefully have you saying, that's a real piece of art. Meyer's Muscle Panic was presented in an altered format at the Dunlop Art Gallery in Regina from October 23rd, 2020 to January 22nd, 2021. In previous iterations at other venues, in pre-COVID times, Muscle Panic was simultaneously an installation and a performance that reimagined the gallery as a locker room redolent with queer, physical, and emotional signs. With COVID-19 restrictions, Meyer was unable to activate her installation with a multi-performer event at the Dunlop Park Gallery. Such performances have included donning uniforms created from mismatched thrift store finds, smelling each other's armpits, and performing sports drills, exploring endurance as a gendered phenomenon within sport. In the exhibition, you will notice several elements that suggest a gymnasium cobbled together from both purpose-made and repurposed items. A strangely assembled scaffold suggests a jungle gym with multiple chin-up bars. There is a thick wooden balance beam bent back upon itself in a spiraling zigzag. A makeshift archive of images are adhered to a grid of wall-mounted metal bars, rows of rectangular flaps like shingles. Exploring athletics, feminism, queer iconography, and the absurd. A pile of red team jerseys are flopped unceremoniously on a conjoined pair of blue tumbling mats. Meyer's somewhat sensible exploration of queer desire in sport veers, perhaps not altogether strangely, into bodily fluids and sphincters. A large pendant, the sort that might be suspended from the rafters of a hockey arena proclaiming the team's champion status, in this case proclaims wide world of holes. These stark words are accompanied by a pair of crenellated circles in satiny fabrics, leaving no doubt as to the forbidden homosexual desire that athletics actively seek to deny. Although this exhibition closed shortly before this episode goes to air, I urge you to visit the Dunlop Art Gallery's learning site, dunloplearning.ca, to see images of muscle panic installed in Regina and to read Robin Alex McDonald's insightful essay. in the show, I'll invite my robot pal, RT, to observe, analyze, and assess an artwork with me. RT's programming doesn't provide them with much of a background for understanding artworks, so we use some questions to help make sense of artworks when we encounter them. You can use these questions to help you decode the special language of visual art, too. RT, thanks for joining me to talk about Hazel Meyer's exhibition, Muscle Panic, at the Dunlop Art Gallery, on view until January 22nd. It's nice to see you and see some art. What is the first thing you notice about this exhibition? I notice the flag. It's graphic, black with a diagonal white slash. It reminds me of pennants that might be hung from the rafters of an area celebrating titles the team has won. It says Wide World of Holes, that makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Do you like it? Good question. I don't really know. I guess I like some parts of it. There's a scaffold jungle gym thing. I'm just kind of confused by this. 
I guess that making visually appealing work is not the artist's primary goal. It seems a bit messy and I suspect that this is deliberate. What kinds of colors are used? Mostly red and dark green and natural wood. Team colors, sports equipment colors. What materials are used? Thick wood balance beams. Scaffolding. T-shirts. Pennants and flags. Tumbling mats. How is it made? Or how you think it was made? Nothing really makes sense. The balance beam is twisted and on itself in a triangular shape and also tilts awkwardly. It wouldn't be practical for doing a beam routine. The pile of red t-shirts is really interesting when you look at it closely. The t-shirts look like uniforms but they're not mass-produced to be the same. I can see where red fabric has been sewn on to cover something up or red marker has been used to color it in or where white numbers or letters have been stitched on. I heard that the artist rescues lots of materials from thrift stores. I imagine that she buys a lot of red t-shirts to make her artwork from. The textiles all look like the artist must have sewn them herself. Is it orderly or disorderly? Disorderly. It's confusing and contradictory. I think the artist wants to create an environment of a kind of joyful and harmless anarchy. Just throw your sweaty shirts on the floor. Make a big pile. Are the lines smooth and curved or jagged and straight? I think most of the lines are straight, looking at things that seem to structure the exhibition like the scaffolding and balance beam. It's funny that the lines in a show alluding to queer identities in sports relies upon straight lines. How would you describe the texture? There are a lot of materials and textures. Some textures seem soft. Others are alarmingly hard and unforgiving. Now we're going to move on to an analysis of the relationship between elements of the artwork. What is this and what is it normally made of? The team jerseys are made from a motley assortment of t-shirts gleaned from thrift stores and appliqued by hand to make them appear uniform. Usually team jerseys are specially produced, all together and identically. The balance beam does look like it's made from the sort of material a balance beam would be made of, this thick, solid lumber. Sometimes balance beams are covered with a kind of soft and grippy suede. Do these two things go together? The jungle gym and the scaffold don't go together naturally. Why would the artist choose to put them together? Scaffolds are temporary, moved and rebuilt in new formats and are usually used for construction. So I think the resulting sculpture has invested all of the associations of precarity, mutability and transformation of the scaffold. I think the artist recycled old t-shirts into team jerseys in order to convey a message about belonging and creating a group identity from discards and misfits. What feelings do the lines, colors, and textures give you? It's a bit overwhelming. There are bits of things piled on or hanging off of the scaffold. I imagine that the artist would want to enhance this overload of visual stimulation with a performance by a group of people. Can you say this is one type of art, for example, a drawing or a video, or is it a hybrid? And if it's a hybrid, why would the artist choose to mix different disciplines together? I guess the artist incorporates performance into sculpture installation to really bring home the visceral quality of bodies doing athletic actions and really enjoying the verboten. Now we're going to discuss the visual effects, how feelings are expressed and social issues are represented in the artwork. RT, when you look at Muscle Panic, are there certain visual effects that stand out to you? Are there feelings that it seems that the artist is expressing? Or are there social issues represented? The artist is explicit about acknowledging desire in the realms of sport where it is normally actively discouraged and denied, especially queer desire. The balance beam might be about gendered identity, it has been then inclined. These might be referencing obstacles to performing a gendered identity. 
The balance beam is a really gendered piece of gym equipment, only female gymnasts perform on the balance beam. So it could be about the difficulty of performing this gender identity. Sometimes the title is a clue to an artwork's meaning. Let's read it. Muscle Panic is a title. I guess Muscle Panic could refer to the sphincter that Maya references in her wide world of whole spanner, the involuntary constriction that might accompany intestinal disturbance and heightened mental states. Muscle clearly seems to relate to gym, fitness and sports culture in a kind of gendered physiology. I wonder what the panic is, gender panic? Feeling marginalized by very rigid gender roles? Thanks for your perspective and insightful observations and interpretations of Hazel Meyer's Muscle Panic at the Dunlop Art Gallery, which closed January 22, 2021. It's been fun questioning another exhibition of contemporary art with you. A real piece of work is a regular segment on this show where I talk to someone about their job in the art world. Artist is generally never a job in an art gallery, so what kinds of jobs are there in art museums, art galleries, artist-run centers, and other institutions of art? And just what do these employees do? I think a lot of jobs are like icebergs. There's only a tiny bit poking up above the surface that we can see and identify, but there are hidden, unexpected depths to jobs in the art sector. Today, I'm speaking with Risa Horowitz, who is an artist, a university professor, and department head of the Department of Visual Arts at the University of Regina. My name is Risa Horowitz, and I'm a visual and media artist who is currently working as an associate professor at the University of Regina. What does associate professor mean? Well, associate professor means that I worked several years as a tenure track assistant professor and received both tenure and uh, promotion to associate professors. So it's a sort of mid-career, if you will, of professorship. After a few years, I might qualify to become a full professor, which might be the equivalent of your senior career, your established professorship. I think that these terms, assistant and associate, might be confusing to people who aren't part of academia. So I appreciate you taking the time to break down that assistant professor does not mean you are a professor's assistant, but that it is a first rung on the ladder towards becoming a full professor. Students beginning their studies, their expectations of what their education will be may not quite meet the reality in terms of this being an academic field. Yeah, that's right. I think most students, not just at the University of Regina, but across mm -hmm. Canada, I've taught in a few institutions now, come into a visual arts studio program thinking that it's all about self-expression and making beautiful paintings. And for many creative people, that that is perfectly well-suited it is that that kind of making is perfectly well suited but within academia certainly and the broader contemporary art world we know that art has the ability to change worldviews to challenge and to criticize systems and institutions to engage in philosophical and intellectual uh, exploration it's much more than merely expressive personally expressive or, or beautiful making beautiful things wonderfully stated goes back to why I do this radio show. I think this leads really nicely into a question I have for you. How did you end up where you are in this career as a university professor, but also in the type of art that you practice and uh, the institution that you're at? 
In my fifth year of undergrad at York University, one of my most influential mentors, if not most influential mentor, Dr. Renata Wickens taught in the Interdisciplinary Fine Arts Studies program at York University, where I did my BFA in Interdisciplinary Fine Arts Studies, focusing on creative writing and photography. And she would invite the students that she was working with to the faculty club on Thursdays for lunch. Renata turned to me and said, you're going to grad school, aren't you? And I said, what's that? From there, I learned what an MFA was. I took a few years to get into graduate school. In grad school, I saw the range of ways that artists made money to allow them to make art. I scoped the field. I saw what happened to artists who worked at artist-run centers. I saw what happened to artists who became sessional lecturers in studio art programs and what happens when people are exploited, when you're working mm -hmm. precariously for these big monster institutions being paid inequitably. I saw those troubles. I knew that I loved academia. I loved the intellectual and creative stimulation that I felt as a student. In making that choice not to, not to seek sessional teaching positions, whenever I did apply for jobs, I wasn't very competitive because I didn't have a great deal of teaching experience, just what I had as an MFA. But I was able to get a one-year visiting assistant professorship at Grenfell campus of Memorial University of Newfoundland. And eventually I did go and do one of those PhDs knowing that it would give me access to facilities, um, the environment, the creative intellectual environment, and teaching. A sessional instructor is, as you mentioned, precarious employment within the university. Every semester you apply for your teaching position and you get paid very poorly. Yeah, and universities have over the decades increased their dependence on, on sessional instructors because they're so inexpensive compared to full-time professors. I think you really did a great job of explaining how you ended up where you are in your career, what path of study and interest experience led you to your position as a university professor. You're listening to A Real Piece of Art on CJTR 91.3 FM, Regina Community Radio. Today we're talking about Hazel Meyer's Muscle Panic at the Dunlop Art Gallery. If there is someone who's listening to this program and thinking, I'd like to do that job, is there any advice that you would give to them? Before I got this job, I was in my third year of the PhD prepared to develop my skills as a bookkeeper. So basically thinking you weren't going to have a career in the arts. I mean, I was 40. Who gets hired at a university at 40? As it turns out, most people in, in studio art and universities aren't as young as in other fields because we need to prove ourselves as professional artists before any university department will take us seriously. There are so few jobs and it is so competitive. And so the advice that I would give is don't rely on the possibility that you'll get a full-time job because anyone could have gotten my job. 200 people in Canada could have been hired instead of me. They would be just as or more qualified than me. And it was total chance. That's what it feels like. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I also wanted to ask you about perceptions of your, your mm -hmm. job in popular culture. Mm -hmm. Can you think of an example from popular culture of an art professor that <laughs> you maybe thought was uh, perhaps right on the money or more more probably outlandish. Maybe on, on one episode of CSI, there was an art professor who was a suspect in a murder. 
And it was like the classic sort of stereotype of the absent-minded professor and the nutso artist, right? And like most artists I know are not absent-minded, nor are nor do they fulfill the sort of wears black countercultural <laughs> partying vagabond that artists are perceived as. Those uh, murder mystery stereotypes about artists tend to fall into two categories. They're either just the most perverse people or they're just like buffoons. They're so absent-minded, so disconnected with the world and, and practical life around them. Mm. And of course, we know that that's not true. It is not. <laughs> what does your uh, family or friends think about your job? Do they have a idea of what you do? For one part of my family, I didn't earn their you know credibility in their eyes as an artist until I got a job as a professor. And when I became department head, they were beyond proud. They have no idea that, you know, everyone becomes department head at some point and it's just a ton of email. That sort of reminds me of a professor that I had in my undergrad. And he told me that his parents didn't think it was a real career mm. until he had his first show at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And then they thought, oh, okay, you're for real now. <laughs> well, the other part of my family, you know, my grandmother was a painter. Not a professional artist, but a hobbyist. And my mother is a painter, not a professional, but a hobbyist. So the creative part of my family always nurtured me. And they, I think, have a more realistic understanding of what I do as both an artist and as a woman and as a professor. Actually, you mentioned that you became department head. So what are your day-to-day -day tasks, let's say, as a professor? And then what are your day-to-day -day tasks on top of that as department head? So as a professor, I have three, there are three main aspects to my job. And uh, the first is my research, my art practice. Uh, and the second is my teaching. And the third is, as I mentioned earlier, service, administrative work. So um, the administrative work means that at the department level, the faculty level and the university level, I contribute to various committees, whether it's a curriculum committee or a scholarship committee or um, committees pertaining to uh, admissions and uh, studies or uh, at the university level participating in um, the executive of council, which is one of the main governing bodies of the university or on strategic planning committees. As a teacher, I spend a lot of time preparing for classes and teaching classes and grading classes and interacting with students. And as an artist, you know, I do my art thing. Um, as department head, I work with my colleagues to manage the uh, department's budget, hiring of sessionals, hiring of students, planning the teaching assignments and scheduling the teaching assignments, coordinating with my colleague department heads and the associate deans and the dean in the dean's office on faculty administration broadly. And uh, one of the great, great, one of the funnest parts of the job is advising students. I, I meet with students regularly to advise them on their uh, paths uh, and their course selection. So that's it in a nutshell. I appreciate that you talked about how much uh, this contact with students, uh, helping them on their paths to become professional artists or, or the type of artists that they want to become, because that is also what appeals to me about teaching. Is there an artwork that you grew up with? Could be in your house or a non-gallery context, like a doctor's or a dentist's office or a piano teacher's house or something. And do you think that this artwork has somehow affected your interest in art? My mother had Donna Summer's disco records in the house. 
and and the stereo system was in the same room as a Morisot print called Me and My Daughter Lisa. So I've sort of conflated um, Donna Summer's Knock on Wood <laughs> with Norval Morisot's very beautiful familial print. I always felt like Lisa was me. You know, it's a very loving, tender depiction of, of a parent and a daughter. Uh, I don't think it, affect, it, it influenced my style. Well, it exposed me to Norval Morisot's work and to a sort of familial tenderness outside of art that could be included within art. Is there an artwork that inspired you to pursue art as a career? In university, I think I had two encounters with art that made me realize that I was an artist. You know, I grew up with people who could paint and who could draw and I couldn't paint or draw. And, but I always knew that, I, you know, I was an artist, not a normal person. So the first was for an assignment to go to the AGO and pick a work of art to, to write about. And I wandered around and I came across one of two really big Mark Rothko paintings. And, you know, I'm not, I don't have a romantic fascination with painting, but as a young, you know, as a 19 year old sitting there looking at this massive, very apparently simple, but complexly layered minimalist, pre-minimalist color field stuff, I gained a very young impression of what it might mean to be an artist working on a work of art. And then as a part of a creative writing class that I took, I did a sound, I randomly decided to do an audio piece where I combined the Gertrude Stein piece with an E.E. E. Cummings poem, As a Wife Has a Cow, is what my piece ended up being called, which was a bit of a, a mashup. But anyway, I did this sound project where I combined two poems and, and used two tape decks and enlisted a friend. So I made a thing that was unconventional, but felt very creative to me. And those were sort of stimulations for me about seeing myself as, a, as an artist, as a creative person. I love that you talked about how you didn't feel that you could paint and draw like some of the art lovers in your family, and yet you knew you were an artist. And there's, you know, so many misconceptions about what it is to be mm -hmm. an artist, either Absolutely. as we talked about how artists are misrepresented in popular culture. <laughs> so, or just someone who paints. <laughs> yes, yeah. Or, you know, that <laughs> painting and drawing is what encompasses art. That's not so. So maybe you want to just talk a little bit about what your art practice is and maybe how you arrived at that as your practice. Well, I was first attracted to photography because I knew I couldn't paint or draw. So at York, I did all the creative writing courses for that minor and I did um, all the photography courses, but I knew I also wasn't a photographer. <laughs> my, my work over the course of the past couple of decades has been primarily grounded in photography, photo-based media, lens-based media, video, performance, documented performance, and installation. And, you know, I guess thematically, if I try to find some through lines, you know, I've, I've been interested over the years in so many different approaches, you know, language, interpretation, uh, the contrast between work and hobby, the relationship of visuality to making things visible, but the really, the, the key for me has often been about 
duration or time or lexicons, like sets of information. So in many ways, I think the work that I do is sort of tacitly epistemological about ways of knowing and ontological about ways of being. I have never made strategic decisions to brand the work that I do or make work that's particularly recognizable as, oh, that's a Horowitz. For me, that's quite a cynical and narrow way of working. I don't want to do just one thing. I want to be able to follow my curiosity however far it goes. And in that sense, you know, that's in part why I've worked with so many different media as well. I'm not just one, an artist who works with one medium. Well, Risa, we can continue our conversation that I will, for the purposes of a real piece of art, I will say thank you for joining me as my guest on the segment, A Real Piece of Work. (laughs) Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being a real piece of work. for listening to A Real Piece of Art on CJTR 91.3 FM, Regina Community Radio. I'm your host, Sandy Moore. Today, we talked about the exhibition Muscle Panic at the Dunlop Art Gallery, which closed January 22nd, but is still available to view on the dunloplearning.ca website. And I spoke to Risa Horowitz about her job as a professor in the Department of Visual Arts at the University of Regina on the segment A Real Piece of Work. Special thanks to Guy Dwyer for the fantastic music used throughout this episode. Be sure to check out the A Real Piece of Art Facebook group and Instagram account, now called Real Piece of Art YQR, for show updates and images of the exhibitions I discuss on the broadcast. Love podcasts? Listen to A Real Piece of Art on the Apple Podcast app by searching the show title on Apple Podcasts, going to soundcloud.com slash real piece of art, or the new CJTR website, cjtr.ca. 